Hi, this is the Extra Podcast. Uh, Jeff Bucknam speaking here. This is one of the Nobody's podcasts, at least in that series. Not because we're interviewing nobodies, but from the world's eyes, they kind of are. Because I have a servant. You're already jumping in. (laughs) This is, I mean, I'm here with my friend Kevin, who's one of the elders of our church. Kevin, can you introduce yourself? Full name. Full name? Kevin Peters. That's your full name. You don't have a middle name. Uh, Kevin Neil Peters. Wow. Yeah. Is that a family name, Neil Peters? Uh, yeah, it's it's coming from uh, Cornelius, actually. But my mother, my father, well, of course, wanted to name me Cornelius, but my mother uh, vetoed that one, and we settled with Neil. Oh, Mennonite, so, Mennonite background. Oh, good. Yeah. So, Kevin, uh, you are an elder of our church. You are a young man. I am. How old are you? Uh, 43. 43 years young. You are not the youngest elder. We've spoken to our youngest elder already, Jason Wall, but uh, you are you are a young one. I am, yeah. So uh, tell me, I just want to know a little bit about your story, your background, all that sort of stuff. Sure. How far do you want me to go back? Uh, where did you, where, you, are you from this area? Yeah, I was uh, born and raised in Abbotsford. Spent the majority of my life other than uh, a couple of significant chunks. Really? Yes. So... When you, when you say born and raised in Abbotsford, yeah. like the MSA hospital. MSA hospital. In fact... Uh, it doesn't exist anymore. It doesn't but it, exist anymore. There were, uh, I think, f- well, well, my son was born in the new hospital, but there were like four generations of Peters is born in that MSA hospital. Did you grow up in the church? Yes. Like in this, in Northview? No, not Northview. I, I grew up attending various Mennonite churches, mostly... Mennonite uh, or Mennonite Brethren? Mennonite Brethren, mostly <clears throat> Central. I, I spent a lot of my childhood at Central Heights um, for, for a number of reasons we won't get into at this point, but I also uh, spent a number of time in various Pentecostal churches in this city. We kind of alternated from Mennonite to Pentecostal to Mennonite to Pentecostal, so I have a, a very interesting... How often would you change churches? Probably every uh, two years. Wow. What? There's reasons behind it, but I won't get into that. Okay. So you've had lots of experience with the churches of Abbotsford. Yeah, I have. That's great. And you are, um, you went to university? No, you did not. I don't. No, I skipped the, I went to, I went to community college. So my grade 12 year of high school, my family moved up north. What high school did you attend? Well, I was going to Abbey Junior, Abbey Senior. Okay. I I should have technically graduated from Abbey Senior had we maintained the family course, but the family ended up moving up to Fort St. John, British Columbia. I followed, uh, I didn't go with them actually right away, but I ended up following them up there eventually. And I ended up uh, in Fort St. John for my grade 12 years. So I graduated from North Peace Secondary School. And then um, I worked for a year up there. And then I went to a community college in Dawson Creek, which is just south of Fort St. John. And I got my aircraft maintenance engineering diploma. Wow. Yeah. Isn't there, <clears throat> isn't there a TV show about Dawson Creek? No. Nah, I'm pretty sure there is. No, wait, it was Dawson's Creek. and the Same and, thing? No, no, it's not the same thing. That, I don't want to win. That takes place down in South Carolina or somewhere, I think. That's oh, so it's not, no, it's, it's not it's in northern BC. <laughs> no, it's not northern BC. Okay. This is a different, different town then. Completely different world, <laughs> yep. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you, you, yeah, uh, yeah. Fort St. John. Fort St. John. What do they do in Fort St. John? Oil. What's the, oil. Oh, uh-huh. Oil, natural gas. Yeah. It's a, it's, it's a, it's a resource based. But you didn't want to stay there. Oh no, I never wanted to go there in the first place. So I definitely didn't want to stay there. But I ended, so I ended up in the North for, for essentially four years. But as soon as I graduated from college, I moved back down South, came back down to Abbotsford. Okay. 
And then I, I did you meet your spouse here? Yes, at Northview. So I came back. Uh, I came back down to Abbotsford uh, after I graduated. Uh, what I, year are we talking here? We're in the early nineties. We're at this talking ninety four. Yeah. And I started attending Northview by ninety five six, and then uh, I met my wife at a small group Bible study. Really, not at the Roaring Twenties. Well, it was a it was a a Bible study that came out of the Roaring Twenties. It was one of the community groups that was a Roaring Twenties community group. So mm-hmm. that's kind of what. Drew, drew me to the church. What was I, the Roaring Twenties, for those who don't know? The Roaring Twenties was the uh, young adult ministry based, the, the, the college age group. Uh, so uh, you're in your 20s, that's where the Roaring Twenties come from. And it was it was the thing in the in Abbotsford at the time. It was attracting all sorts of college people to the church because mm. they, they, it was just a big crowd. And, and often college age people get attracted to crowds so they do well so it was other genders are there yeah that's right so it was it was a it was a big thing that was happening in Abbotsford I I kind of got pulled in from the fringe but uh, I, I quickly realized uh, missions has been my passion all since way back from high school so I knew coming out of high school and, and that's the reason I went into college to get my maintenance diploma was because I was going to go on the mission field as a maintenance mechanic uh, with aviation, with MAF with me. Well, at the time, I wasn't sure who I was going to serve with, but I was going to serve with someone. And and the whole the whole driving force was um, I, I I felt the burden to see the gospel proclaimed in places where it wasn't proclaimed, and either because uh, a place was cut off from the gospel in the sense that it was a closed country, they they wouldn't uh, allow typical missionaries in. Uh, in which case, I would have a trade. A- aviation's a, a a worldwide occupation, so there are planes and helicopters everywhere, even in closed countries. So I thought I could either use it as as, as a tool to get into a closed country, or uh, the gospel isn't being proclaimed because people are geographically isolated. And, mm. and I, with aviation, we have access to to get evangelists and, and church planters and church development people into uh, geographically isolated areas. So that's kind of what drew me to the occupation. It, I, I could There were a number of options on the mission field that, that, that could use those skills. Yeah. So I went and got my diploma. I moved back down to Abbotsford, uh, got kind of drawn to the Roaring Twenties crowd because some of my old high school friends were, were drawn to that crowd and they, they kind of invited me along. But uh, that's not what kept me at Northview. What kept me at Northview was, was uh, it was a church that also had a passion for missions mm-hmm. and seeing the gospel proclaimed. And, and at the time, Frank Martins was the missions pastor. And I, I, I shortly after I started attending Northview, I had some conversations with him and I, and I recognized that this was a church that... Um, that, that I thought would be a good fit for me. And uh, I wanted to be a part of a church that would support me long-term. I was going over long-term, mm-hmm. so I wanted a church that, that could stand behind me and support me uh, for as many years as I'd go over, and, and Northview fit the bill. So you met your, what's your wife's name? Erin Peters. Erin. Yep. That was her name before you married her? No. Her name was Erin Hebert. Oh, okay. So this is, like a, this is Mennonite blue blood marriage. This, yeah. Yeah. Wow. The angels in heaven rejoiced. <laughs> there was lots of singing, yes. <laughs> so you uh, you have three kids? We have three kids currently. Yeah. Oldest is? 15. Youngest? And then 13. And then the youngest is seven. Okay. Good. And they're having a good... You're, you're enjoying living in... You're an aircraft, me- a aircraft mechanic now. Yep. Yes. Or a helicopter mechanic yes. now. Yes. But between now yep. and... Uh, your schooling and yep. training and stuff. You yep. actually did go. I ended up overseas yeah. on the mission field, and you went to. We went to Madagascar, mm. and no, it's nothing like the cartoon. Did you? Did you know? <laughs> do you know Emperor Julian? 
uh, yeah, and, and he likes to move it, but uh, no, um, I, I never, I never. What do you saw, mean it's nothing like that? Of course, <laughs> I it never is. saw a singing it's exactly lemur. Exactly what no. it's like. I saw dancing lemur, sure, because they do dance, but I didn't. I never saw a singing lemur. Okay. So Madagascar, why Madagascar? Why Madagascar? Well, it's okay. So where is Madagascar? A lot of people are is, listening. Yeah. Sure. That sounds like a movie, but other than that. No, Madagascar is actually the fourth largest island in the world, and it's located off of the southeast coast of Africa. Um, technically, it's an African nation. Uh, it belongs geographically to the African continent. However, it is it's it is a ways off of uh, the continent. Um, and the people themselves, uh, the majority of them actually won't refer to themselves as Africans necessarily. Really? Yeah, they're, they're Indian Ocean people. Hmm. They're island people, so um, they, they they will kind of um, they'll kind of take ownership of of the of the African heritage if it suits them, but um, they, they would probably not tend to want to necessarily be called Africans or be part of Africa in general. So, what's it like living like? So you moved yeah, there. So I want to know why why, why this why particular country though. Okay, so this particular country. Well, it's it's, it's the agency. Uh, we ended up signing on with a mission agency called Heli Mission. They operate helicopters in a variety of different geographically isolated locations around the world. Why? Why? Why, why would why, you why, why? operate a helicopter in a geographically isolated part of the world? Well, because people need to hear the gospel. Okay, so and the helicopter comes and it just they magically hear it. <laughs> no, they don't magically hear it. Okay, so so how it uh, how it plays out is. Um, we, we know that uh, people are saved by responding to the gospel message uh, that, that has to be proclaimed by someone. Uh, there are people groups around the world, uh, especially so when, it, when we get to Heli Mission, we, there are people groups that are geographically isolated from, from any other people group. And so they, they kind of exist inside of their own microcosmic world for the most part until um, someone comes in from the outside and accesses those groups. Now, um, we as, I, we as Christians believe that this gospel needs to be proclaimed to all people groups and, and, um, and that there is no hope for salvation outside of the proclamation of the gospel. Um, so we, it, it's, it's up to us as a church, and, and I'm, not, I'm not necessarily saying Western church, but it's up to us as a church who have received the gospel, it's up to us to... Uh, be part of the proclamation of that gospel. God has entrusted that gospel to us that we might go forth and proclaim it. And there are people groups that have not had the opportunity to hear the gospel proclaimed to them. And so it's it's up to us as a church to get into these areas. Now, some of these areas are very difficult to get into because uh, geographically, they're, the, the mountain ranges, the rivers. In Madagascar, we, they're, they're, there's no road infrastructure because it's, it's, it's an undeveloped country. There, there isn't much there for, for other countries to to pillage from <laughs> in some ways. And so the infrastructure has never been developed. They're isolated. They're, they're extraordinarily isolated, being an, an island off of the coast that doesn't have much going for it that other countries would be interested in. Mm. Uh, it, it, it's left it, um, to some extent, forgotten by the rest of the world. Um, now, we as a church know that it exists. We know that people on that island need to hear the gospel proclaimed to them. So, so we're looking at ways. How can we? How can we get people, uh, evangelists, people into these areas to proclaim the gospel? 
uh, a helicopter can overcome a lot of geographical boundaries. There's there's just no way around it. Now, the, the helicopters helicopters aren't necessarily the ideal tool. We're, we're going to get into some pretty in-depth conversation here at the moment, but helicopters are not necessarily the ideal missionary tool because um, a helicopter, by its very nature, comes with a lot of interesting baggage when it comes to missions. Yeah, I bet so. It does. Uh, I mean, the people who are seeing it arrive yes. end up reading, yeah. you are an angel from the sky. Yes, and 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 when they don't have when when literally they've never some of these people groups have never seen machinery of any form hmm. when when you come flying out of the air in one of these things uh, how they they, they have no godlike idea, yeah they have no idea how to frame this inside of what they understand the world to be and to and to incorporate so I, and and so you you know you you came in a flying chicken is you know is yeah. often you know, a metal chicken is came out of the sky. Uh, <laughs> And and we don't as much as we want them to respond to the gospel, we want them to be responding to the gospel. We don't want them to be responding to what they yeah to, pers- to the fact that you you came flying out of the sky. You're a god. It's like the that right. passage in Acts where they think that Paul yes. and Barnabas are Zeus and Hermes, yeah. and no matter how much they try to convince them, they're like, no, you you are <laughs> you are yeah. It's so it, it's it's not ideal. However, we, we also recognize that it's not ideal to leave people without uh, access to the gospel. So we we do our best to, to to minimize the the downside of the of the vehicles we're using and the methodology we're using uh, to proclaim the gospel. We we recognize that, and so we're actively trying to to counter some of the negative effects of what we're doing as much as possible. So you got to Medigod. You were there for seven years. We, we were in country for six years. Yeah, okay. we were serving with Heli Mission for seven, but we were actually in country for six. Okay, what's that like? First day you arrived. You, oh, get, off the, you get off the airplane. Yeah, and you know, I hadn't, um, uh, I hadn't been outside of North America. Like, I hadn't even been to Mexico so I wasn't necessarily um, ready for for the Your type ideal of, missionary. Yes. I wasn't necessarily ready for what I was going to encounter. Um, I, I will say though that uh, I, I before we went to Madagascar, I worked for, for essentially five six years in the helicopter industry, getting the the relevant experience I needed to carry out the duties I was going to do in Madagascar. And a lot of my 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 those years were spent fixing helicopters inside of some very remote places in Canada. Mm. Um, so so I was used to isolation. I was also used to working. Um, Inside and around reserves, and there's a, there's actually a lot of similarity between some of the some of the reserve communities, isolated reserve communities in Canada, and some of the isolated uh, places in in Africa or wherever else you end up. So I, I can't say that I was completely without some kind of context with how to deal with with where I found myself. But it was a shock. There's no doubt about it. I was. Uh, it what was, was the hardest part? The when hardest, you, I mean, initially, what was the hardest part initially? The hardest, well, I mean, first of all, you're instantly you're instantly thrown up against some language barriers. Um, what, yeah. what language do they speak? So, so they speak Malagasy, which is just a local. And then even inside of Malagasy, it's it's one of these countries where because people are isolated and it's such a large country, there's multiple dialects, like hundreds of Malagasy dialects, and, and you can take a person from the north, put them in the south, and they won't be able to necessarily understand each other. So, yeah. it's like um, going to Newfoundland. Yeah, yeah. Well, Wycliffe, sorry, sorry, that's no, right. Sorry. Wycliffe is very active in Madagascar just because there are so many language groups there, also. But, uh, anyways, that's a diversion. So. Uh, you're up against language. Malagas is the official language. The the actual kind of common language and, and bureaucratic language inside of the capital city, which is where we lived and based out of, uh, that's French because Madagascar was a French colony 
they got independence. In Did the you 60s. speak? You didn't speak French prior to, prior to getting there. I had conversational. I, I had the I had the the benefit of our great um, Canadian educational system that gives us, you know, but not French immersion. Quebecois, hello and how are you? But no, I was no, I wasn't French immersion. Uh, however, um, all all three of our children are French immersion, and they can speak far more fluent French than I can. Um, you know, and I was working beside uh, all of these other mission groups and missionaries and, and expat communities, and and I was I was astounded to to see that uh, you know everyone else working in this country could speak three, four, five languages, and I, I felt foolish as a Canadian I could only speak English really and barely, um, barely, yeah. <laughs> right? So sorry, yeah. So I'm, I'm I I picked up. My, my French improved while I was there, but I never really did get great. I didn't, I didn't have to, I didn't necessarily, to carry out the duties I was doing, I didn't necessarily have to talk with anyone. So, um, I could get, I could get away with, with, uh, with English for the most part. So you went there, uh, the language barriers there, yeah, did, language where, barriers where, was there where did you, it was the poverty, poverty that was, oh. that was probably hard for you to, I mean, you, you, you have ideas about it in yeah. your mind and yeah. the poverty that we see in North America certainly is shocking, but not. No, extreme poverty. When, when, and, you know, you come in as a missionary and, and your, your, your sole purpose for being there is to help people. I mean, that's, that, that's what you've come to do, uh. Ideally, to help people by proclaiming the gospel and having them respond and having the gospel transform their lives uh, is 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 the is the ideal. But but you you want necessarily out of gospel proclamation and the other the other things we're doing. We we, we cared for people as people, and and people have all sorts of needs, uh, physical needs, uh, emotional needs, spiritual needs, financial needs. And so you, you you try to seek to help them as as best you can in a variety of, of ways you can and, and the just the staggering amount of need um, that that that's you know it's how do you make this I mean when you're in that situation yeah, Kevin you, yeah like you how see you so just, much yeah. need do you find it difficult did you find it difficult to know which ones to address because people will come yes. to your door oh all the time especially for being the white folks yeah. coming in yeah. and having things that I imagine that they, they didn't, you were able to afford yes. things yep. that locals were probably not able to afford. And so how do you make decisions about that? Um, how are you going to help? Who are you yeah. not going to help? You must've passed some people by. Sure. Oh yeah. You, you have to pass a lot of people by, you have to pass most everyone by because that's the, the that's the reality of it. The, um, what, what else, what I'll say is, um, I, first of all, I, I don't know that there isn't any, there isn't any real easy answer to that question, and each person um, will will approach that in different ways, and will, and will have different responses. Um, my wife and I both had very different um, mechanisms for, to some extent, for coping and rationalizing and working our way through these decisions. We we, we often consulted with, especially if we wanted to involve ourselves in, in a person's life in order to help them, we we would do that together. So we had we would have conversations. Um, about how best how best we can do to help people, uh, of, of course. One, one of the things I was actually surprised to kind of uh, be be confronted with was that first of all, people people want your help, but they don't necessarily want it the way you want to give it to them. Um, they don't necessarily want the help that you offer them. Uh, and sometimes, sometimes you want to help people. You see the need. You attempt to help them, uh, only to realize that they don't actually even want your help. And and that's, it's it. It's, so you have all you have all sorts of each each issue each situation comes with with a con with a context to it that has multiple fast facets to it, complications to it. Uh, and just like just like life, all of our lives, 
uh, every no situation is really simple to understand or grasp from the outside. Uh, once you start asking questions, taking a look at what the actual problem is, you realize that there's all sorts of underlying issues and, and background problems that need to be addressed to actually help someone. So helping people is actually very rarely easy, simple, or quick. There's a book out called When Helping Hurts yeah. that's pretty helpful, I found. Yes, very. Just interacting with, with yep. these questions. Yeah, if you, yeah, if you, if you really want to, to, to take a look at, at how you can involve yourself or how to approach helping people's needs, that, that is an excellent resource to start mm-hmm. with. Uh, I'll, tell, I'll tell one quick story about, about kind of one of the, one of the situations that, that still is so engraved on both Aaron and in my mind uh, when we when we're asked questions about helping people and how do we handle this, we so we were driving through the city and and the roads are very narrow. They they were designed essentially when vehicles weren't really around, so they were designed for ox carts and and eventually cars. But for the longest time, there were, were hardly any cars in the city, so they could get away with very narrow roads. The capital city's in, in a mountain, so the roads are very windy. They kind of go up the hill and down the hill. Um, so. Now that there are more vehicles, there's still not a ton, not compared to what we see around here, but there are more vehicles and the roads are often clogged. Um, and so traveling through the city is usually a, a, a time-consuming exercise and absolute frustration. Um, but one day we were driving through the city. We had recently purchased a, a basket of fresh plums. And we had this basket of plums on the front seat between, Erin was with me, she was in the, in the passenger side, I'm driving the vehicle, we have, the pas- we have this bu- basket of plums in between us. And, and we come through a particular part of the city, a neighborhood where there's just all sorts of, there's just a whole raft of kids playing on the side, side of the road and kind of mingling in, in and amongst the traffic, we're going quite slowly. One of the children come up to the window, you can see the, the child is malnourished, he's, he's not, not overly healthy, and he's a young, young boy. Uh, hungry, obviously hungry. And so Aaron takes one of the plums from the basket and she holds it out to this child so that the child accepts the plum. Uh, another child comes. Uh, within probably 30 seconds, we had we were driving a, a small pickup truck. We had kids in the back bed of the truck. We had people climbing onto the truck, trying to trying to pull the basket out from inside the truck. We had the, 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 the first original child we had given the plum to is getting beat up on the corner because a bigger kid is trying to take the plum from him. We, we started a riot to some extent by trying to give a young boy a plum. Yeah. And, and that's, that's <laughs> difficult. It's that, that's difficult to come to, to terms with, to come to grips with. And, and eventually you just, so, so then how do you respond? You, you roll up the windows, you drive away and, and you're crying. And I'm, what, do we never give a plum to, how do, how do we deal yeah, with it? Yeah, and it's very difficult to sort through. It's heart-wrenching. The, yeah. the implications, and it reminds me of years ago, I was in uh, Guatemala City in the Guatemala City dump, and uh, I gave a little kid a hat uh, one of the days, yeah. and he put it under his shirt. It was a cat hat that I had had. He just kind of, as soon as he got it, he was so happy. And then he put it under his shirt and he yeah. walked away. The next day I showed up to do some work in uh, for the ministry that was there. And I walked around the corner and there was uh, about a 17-year-old boy with a hat on his head. Mm-hmm. sent that hat. And I threw an interpreter. I said, where'd you get the hat? And he said, I just found it. Later that day, I found the little boy I gave it to who yeah. had a black eye. Yeah. And also, and that's essentially what happens yeah. is that, is that, you know, it, he ends up getting injured by me giving him yeah. a hat. Yeah. 
So it's, it creates all sorts of problems. You have conversations with people who live yep. in those situations. And, but the book is, the book is very helpful. Is. I do have a question though. So yep. you're there for seven years dealing yes. with this kind of poverty or yep. six years dealing yep. with this kind of poverty. You come back here yep. and people have driving nice cars yeah. on big wide roads. And did you think that everybody here was a hateful uh, materialist who like, how do you deal with that, with that move back here? Yeah, it's um, to, to some extent, uh, you just kind of shelve it. <laughs> to be honest with you, uh, like I recognize that 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 we live in a in, in a different in a different culture and different place in the world, and um, I, I, I I I recognize relatively quickly that I, I can I can hold it against people, or I can and, and even I can hold it against myself when I see the car I drive and the house I live in. Um, and I can, and I can, I can, I, I don't know that, how do you, how do you deal with that? You eventually, you just have to accept that, that, that as a, as a, as a nation, as a culture, as a, as a place in time and, and in this world, we're, we're blessed in ways that, that other parts of the world aren't. And, and it doesn't, it shouldn't be that way. It, it definitely shouldn't be that we don't recognize well, the inequity shouldn't necessarily be the case, but no. there's a there's there's this tension that you have. On sure, the one, there is. On the one hand, you recognize how how nice it is to have yeah. the things that you do. On the other hand, this kind of kinship that you have with brothers and sisters in Christ around the world who don't have it, yeah. and a desire for there to be some level of equity and an involvement. Yeah. I, going on missions and being involved in situations like you were involved, I would assume makes you the kind of person that when you get when you get back here, you're you do acclimate to this area, but I would imagine it makes it you more more aware of the needs that exist out there. Not just, I mean, spiritually, absolutely, but also yes. also materially. Yeah, you. Um, I, you I share I, more. I hope. Sure. Yeah, yeah. I tried very okay. So first of all, um, I consciously tried very hard to resist the urge to judge others. Um, they 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 haven't they haven't necessarily seen. And experience the things I experienced, um, which, which which then shapes the way I the way I see our possessions and, and the way I view them and, and the way I pursue or don't pursue them and and I I, I don't pursue them. Hmm. <laughs> um, it, it I also then take upon myself a little bit of responsibility for 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 some education, bringing some awareness uh, to to the people around me. One of one of the bigger one of the, uh, the one of the bigger things that that I had to come to terms with and deal with was yes a, a recognition that that there there is an inequality question that that floats around in in every relationship and and, and place we're in um, and, and I had to deal with that but the first thing I had to deal with that I really struggled with was just that um, that that whole experience had changed me so much as a person on a whole number of levels, not just the way I viewed possessions and material things, but, but just how I viewed what was important and valuable in life and in health and in all sorts of aspects of living, uh, that, that whole experience had transformed me to the extent that I wasn't anywhere near the same person I was when I left. Mm. And I come back to my hometown, to my old friends and, and, and the places I lived and grew up in. And Yes, other people had changed, and the city had changed while we were gone, but not at the same rate proportion yeah. that I had changed. 
At least not the same rate no. in that in that particular area. Yeah. Yeah. And so and so I really struggled with okay, so so if I want to try to educate my my friends, my my coworkers, my fellow brothers and sisters inside the church, uh, at first the first thing I had to overcome was just how how do I even talk to people who whenever they look at me, they have this look in their eyes like they know me because they knew who I was. They didn't necessarily know who I am now. And, and I struggled with how do I, first of all, I have to get to this place where they, they can understand who I am now, and then maybe they can hear what I'm trying to say yeah. and, and recognize that there's, that there's a whole raft of things behind what I'm saying. It's not just, it's not just a theoretical proposition about inequality in the world. It's, right. it's this is what I've seen, this is what, I, what I've experienced, and, and, and we need to adjust the way we see the world. Um, how do I bring that across to people? What do you... As we finish here, yeah. well, like how, what do you miss most yeah. about, well, about the mission field, about Madagascar in particular? Yeah, I miss, um, I, I, I miss the, the sense of dedicated purpose. Um, w- one of the, one of the things that, that we're always up against here in North America is, is our culture is, is so affluent in so many ways. Um, and it's, it's very consumer driven. It's very individualistically driven. It's narcissistic. Mm. Um, and so you're always, I find myself as a person always, um, pushing back against the culture I'm surrounded by, uh, with, and, and what everyone tells me, I think I should be pursuing or valuing, uh, the importance, uh, that the culture places on certain things that I, that I don't agree in and don't, don't, don't want to follow. And yet the culture is always pushing me into places I don't want to go. Um, and, and there is, of course, a, a selfish side of me, a, a, a part of me that, that would like to go to those places. So I find myself battling some of my uh, sinful nature that, that I'd rather not have to deal with. And, and frankly, in Madagascar, because uh, it's, it's, a, it's a poor nation and, and you're removed from a lot of that. You don't have to fight the same battles yeah. as you do here. So in some ways, you miss, you miss it's that. simpler, it's, yeah. it's, it's easier to be a Christian and uh, it's easy, like, like, like to live, yeah, to live the Christian focused life of, of, of what's really valuable to me. What, what is my real purpose uh, yeah. in life? I, I don't, I'm not distracted by nearly what I'm distracted. I think that some people will find that a bit shocking what you just said, but a really great, great thing to reiterate that it, it is difficult to be a Christian in the yeah. West these days. And, and with the money and all these sorts of, especially if you take seriously the Bible's, yeah. The, the Bible's warnings regarding some of the stuff that we get really infatuated with, mm-hmm. and yet, uh, and yet, we're called to still live faithfully here. Yeah. And part of that, a significant part of that, is letting letting, uh, as Colossians one says, uh, set your mind on things above, yeah. where Christ is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So, yeah, taking your cues from Him, not be conformed to this world, but by the renewing of your mind. Mm-hmm. And, and yeah, and and the relationships, the relationships we had over there, um, s- serving in in adverse conditions in foreign environments, alongside other brothers and sisters who have also uh, dedicated themselves to yeah. a certain There's level. There's a camaraderie. Of, in there that. is a camaraderie that that is very that, that is nearly impossible to to replicate uh, here in, in Canada. Would you recommend missions to people who are listen, listening <laughs> to you? Would you recommend it? Uh, Do you think more well, people should consider it? Yes and no. I think I think I think more people need to consider it. I don't necessarily think that everyone should be going. I, I think 
and I'll make, I'll make a plug for, for Northview and, and the missions focus that we're taking on. Um, uh, I think that people need to be sent mm. and not all people are, are to be sent. So I think everyone needs to, needs to be a part of, of missions. Everyone has a role as by, by, by nature of being a Christian inside of a church, that the, the church has been given a task. Not necessarily every individual, well, every individual has a part to play in that task, but the church has been given a task to see the gospel proclaimed around the world to all peoples. And, um, and we as a church need together to decide who, who gets sent, who goes where, how do, we, how, do we, how do we approach this task that we've been given to do it well and to honor God and to yeah. glorify his name. And, and different people need to take different roles in that task, and not everyone's going to be the one that goes. And everybody has a part to play. Yeah. Everyone has a part to play. Yeah. It has been great talking to you, Kevin. Thank yeah. you so much for uh, your time, your That's service here at the church. And I hope that uh, you're able to fix lots of good helicopters that are going to save all of us from the fires. (laughs) Well, I'll do my best. Thanks, buddy. You're welcome. Talk to you all later.